You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today we're bringing you another update from the prairies, but actually today, this time we're going to be able to talk about some data. We're going to hear about the results from the recently completed North Dakota Breeding Ducks Survey. And for that discussion, I'm welcoming in a friend of mine, Mike Zemanski, Supervisor, Migratory Game Bird Management uh, with North Dakota Game and Fish Department. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. And I appreciate you joining. And I want to give you an opportunity to just provide our listeners a brief description of what it is you do for North Dakota Game and Fish. Sure. So I'm the Migratory Game Bird Management Supervisor for our agency. Um, so I oversee, uh, basically everything dealing with waterfowl, morning doves, sandhill cranes, swans, geese, uh, everything that we do here in North Dakota for, uh, migratory game birds. Well, you are the person we need to speak with. We had Dr. Ken Richkus on an episode a few weeks ago where we were talking with him about the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and Canadian Wildlife Service's decision to cancel the waterfowl breeding population and habitat survey. And so we stepped through all that with him. But following that, I also learned that North Dakota, your agency, was actually going to continue on was with their survey. And so naturally, we wanted to hear about that. It's probably the only set of data, rigorously collected data with respect to wetland conditions, duck numbers that we're going to get from a large scale, at large scale, from the prairies this year. So naturally, we thought this would be important to hear about and our listeners would be interested in. So let's just uh, let's just start with with you giving a description of the type of of how this survey is conducted. Sure. Um, yeah, our survey, um, we've been conducting it since 1948. So this is our 73rd year. We actually started uh, with aerial transects back in 48. But they were um, jettisoned. We were doing both aerial transects and roadside counts. Uh, the roadside counts were being used as uh, you know corrections for you know what you miss when you're flying by at uh, fairly high rates of speed. So we we continued on since 1948 with our eight roadside transects that we have going across the state. We typically have uh, 1,816 miles of transect that we run across all geographies in North Dakota, running north and south. Um, some of the transects go all the way from the South Dakota border to the Canadian border. And uh, we count basically everything involving ducks and wetlands on 220 yards on either side of the road. And we stop as long as we need to stop uh, to get everything counted. We classify every wetland by type. And we classify every social group of waterfowl that we see. And that's a similar protocol that the Fish and Wildlife Service uses for the, 
the big survey, the international survey that they run, where um, you have to, you can't just count the ducks you see, you have to know what they're doing socially uh, because of all the breeding interactions that are happening at the time. So, um, you know, a, a single Drake Mallard gets turned into an indicated pair because you assume that that hen Mallard is off on a nest someplace. And then, you know, going into how many Drakes are with a given hen, and then there's a cutoff where you assume that if there's, you know, five or more drakes, they're, they're going to be out uh, in a bachelor group, uh, probably not involved with nesting hens anymore. Um, so five, yeah, five is the cutoff there where we stop calling them uh, indicated pairs. And uh, that gives us a couple of different indications also as to how uh, nesting phenology is progressing throughout the year. So, yeah, we count um, everything along those lines. We've been we've been doing that survey, like I said, for 73 years. So it's the longest running uh, large scale breeding waterfowl survey we believe to be in the world. So uh, we're pretty happy about that, that we've been able to continue it for this long. Um, we also have a weekly migration survey that we run in the central part of the state. That's, uh, I believe, a 57-mile uh, transect that we use to get, uh, kind of gauge how uh, migration and phenology is progressing, um, both in the wetlands and and with uh, breeding of uh, ducks in the state. So uh, we use that to kind of gauge the timing of our, our statewide survey and then also speak to the data a little bit. Um, sometimes you can have pretty tremendous blips in blue-winged teal or later migrating species. So uh, we want to have that kind of weekly trend of how those migrations are progressing. I did not, until I read the report this year, maybe I listened to, uh, watched a video in which you were interviewed, that I didn't realize how long the North Dakota survey had been conducted, that it's actually been conducted for a longer period of time than the international survey. And so that's uh that's a was an interesting piece of information for me to get just uh, just by itself. So that's that's pretty cool to have North Dakota doing that survey for that long. It gives you quite a data set. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to ask you, you just mentioned a weekly migration survey. Now that's a spring migration survey. I'm guessing you're probably not still doing that survey, right? Right. So we we begin that survey as ice is coming off. We actually want to go run that survey with a bunch of zeros, so we know what we've start before migration. And then we try to go through the first week of June so that we capture those later nesting species like scop and gadwall and get that kind of end. Um, we also count wetlands on it periodically. So at spring thaw, then during the May survey, and then again in June, we count the wetlands and kind of get that trajectory as well. Uh, so have you concluded that survey in June or you, do you still have any additional aspect of that to go? We, we just wrapped it up here. Oh, two weeks ago, I guess. First first week of June, the way the calendar went this year, I think it ended on uh, either the third or the fourth. Um, yeah, so we've got that. Uh, we've got some of those plots uh, created and feel good about our um, our May survey data, you know, looking back at that and seeing that, um, you know, we didn't do the May survey. And then the following week, all of a sudden there was just like no bluing teal or no scop. You know, we had kind of the normal, normal progression of migration throughout the state. Uh, with those species with, uh, you know, the big pulse of scop and other diving ducks coming through in mid-April. And then, um, you know, blue wings were peaking about the time of our survey, but they sort of tapered off. And then by the time you get into June, they they drop off quite a bit. And it, that it's really hard to do those surveys after about the first week of June also because of um, 
uh, progression of vegetation growth in wetlands. At some point, you're you're just not very likely to find uh, blue winged teal pears or or drakes sitting around by themselves unless you actually start doing beat outs on the wetlands because of just the rank vegetation that's going to be up by them. Yeah, at that point, you just can't see them. They're hiding, right? That's kind of the point you're getting at there. Yeah, yep, yep, exactly. So we try to take that into account when we do our, our maze survey. We don't want to be so early that we're we're catching birds that haven't settled into breeding territories yet, but we can't wait so long that we're going to have uh, two and a half, three foot tall vegetation uh, growing up in wetlands, trying to count birds. That's probably another aspect of the survey that a lot of folks don't, um, that probably haven't heard about, you know, the importance of getting that timing right. Because like you said, you don't want to, you don't want to be including all those birds that are still transiting through. And that would be settling way north into the boreal forest or even in, in the Canadian prairies. You want to be capturing just the ducks that are breeding there on your, uh, in North Dakota. And so, yeah, that timing is certainly something you have to have to think about. So thanks for sharing that information. I guess you might say immune from the effects of the coronavirus, uh, but with respect to how you you all had to navigate, did you have to make any changes to your survey protocol this year you know, in response to the coronavirus? Yeah, yeah, we did actually. Um, and we, we didn't change necessarily how we um, do our survey protocol. So the, the way the data was collected is still the same, but the logistics of how we went about it ended up being quite a bit different this year. Um, you know, we, we fortunately through our leadership in the governor's office and our agency had a pretty straightforward approach that if we were alone doing work and weren't interacting or having transmissible moments, there's no reason we shouldn't keep the doors open and keep doing our work. And fortunately, the, just the way we're set up and the scale of the work we were doing allowed us to do that. And, you know, other other operations, especially that big um, May survey run by the Fish and Wildlife Service, just, you know, they weren't in the same boat. They have many people all over the country traveling internationally and they, you know, there was just no way that they could do it. Um, but with our situation being a little bit smaller scale and um, ways to kind of encapsulate the work, uh, we were able to make some adjustments. So we um, typically have a two-person crew uh, out. Uh, we have four two-person two crews uh, running the transects, and we always keep the transect assignments the same. They're always run in the same direction. And when people run them, there's typically one person doing all the observations and another person recording and then you stay in hotels and sometimes stay at relatives' houses or your, you know, a friend's house, whatever. Um, but we had to cut some of that back this year. Some of our crew members were coming from different parts of the state joining up. You know, we had to start planning this um, adjustment back in April. So, um, you know, even, even though things had largely reopened again in May, we were still kind of following these guidelines. So, we had um, people running by themselves. Uh, we split up into eight single-person crews and um, basically took more time, you know, at stops to record the data. It was just essentially a lot more work for people individually to get the work done. And then when we had busy situations, um, you know, they just voice record themselves and play it back right away to enter the data. And we enter our data into a, a GPS reference tablet. Um, to, you know, have all that data geo-referenced and stored automatically in a database, which 
we we actually started doing that before there were iPads and, and real tablets, which is kind of crazy to think about now. We've been doing it for almost 15 years like that. But um, the uh, the workload is a little bit higher for folks. I mean, it's just a lot a lot more going on for an individual to keep your head on a swivel and and finding everything, counting everything and getting the data recording done. So the days were probably a little bit shorter um, in that regard. Uh, we had to move some assignments around also to um, accommodate driving distances. So since people were going to have to basically do several hours of deadhead driving to get to uh, their starting or ending points. So we try to accommodate that with, um, uh, you know, the workloads we, we knew people would have on various transects. And then also a priority was to, we, we have a fall wetland survey that we run in mid-September just before hunting season, just to give people, uh, uh, you know, our hunting uh, public a view of what conditions are looking like as we're, as we're sliding into hunting season. So we wanted to make sure we had our, our overlap with those routes that we typically have that created a little bit additional complexity, but not, not too much. And then we did a little bit of subsampling in places that were just, um, lower priority habitats, um, farther driving distances for people, um, that type of thing, just kind of where it felt like, you know, we had never run these surveys by ourselves before. So we didn't know, you know, if it was just going to be too much for people at times and, making sure that if we if we saw something that we thought might be a little bit too much just to kind of take it off for this year and make sure that we could get a good survey done and all of our crew members from the right away from the get-go we had some conversations about what people were you know concerned about or or wanting to make sure they got done but um everybody was raring to go and just wanting to make sure that we got this important work done well, kudos to you, your agency, and and all your crew members for for doing what was necessary to complete this work. It certainly stands out this year as as an important piece of data, and I think it's something that's uh, yeah, it's going to get a lot more attention this year than I think it probably has in past years because it's the only survey of wetland conditions and waterfowl or breeding duck uh, populations that that we're going to have at least as far as I'm aware. There may be a few other states that have done something, uh, but I'm I'm not heard of those yet. We'll look into that, but certainly. From the prairies, I think this is going to be the highlight. So kudos for that, yeah. Mike. I have one. Uh, I have one other question, and then I want to transition into the actual results of the survey. And I, I think I know the answer to this question, but I just want to make sure our listeners do the the survey, the North Dakota survey, and the data that you collect, uh, and then that we're going to talk about here. That's not part of the waterfowl breeding population and habitat survey that we spoke with Ken Richkus about. I mean, it's an entirely separate data set, an entirely data uh, separate process, right? That is correct. It is a completely different survey. Um, some states do have their state surveys intertwined with the, the May survey that the Fish and Wildlife Service does. Ours is not. Um, as we talked about a few minutes ago, we started in 1948, so well well ahead of the other survey, and and part of the deal there was at the beginning, we needed to have as a state, you know, if we wanted to make adjustments to waterfowl regulations, we needed to have some kind of state survey. It was starting to be recognized at the time that North Dakota was an extremely important breeding area for ducks in North America. So that was kind of how our survey got rolling at that time, and then the services efforts kind of built up around it, you know. Periodically over time, we've had some comparisons when when weird numbers come up, but formally, no, we are not part of the harvest regulation setting process. And it's important too. I mean, this year, even though we're 
kind of the one piece of the data out there for breeding ducks in the prairie region. I mean, it is really important to have that whole uh, scale view that the the survey that the Fish and Wildlife Service and its state and provincial and uh, Canadian government partners provide to provide that whole that that whole scale view where you see everything that's going on because what goes on um, in one part might be completely different from another part. You know, kind of going back into the the stuff that Johnny Lynch talked about with Escape from Mediocrity, where the pieces of the prairie are not all functioning the same way all the time. But what I would say about this year is that, you know, North Dakota is a really, really important part of the puzzle. I mean, we have more breeding ducks than any other state, and our geography is one of the most densely populated by breeding ducks anywhere in the prairies. So to have a survey done this year in absence of everything else and see that we are doing pretty good in our breeding range is really important. I mean, we're we, we do from time to time have the capability to carry the prairie uh, breeding effort. And, you know, this might be one of those years. So um, I'm, I'm very happy we got it done. So, Mike, uh, to the point about the importance of the Dakotas for waterfowl uh, populations, really, you know, across, uh, across North America, I went back to a previous report from the Waterfowl Breeding Population Habitat Survey, that international survey. And if you look at eastern North Dakota or the eastern Dakotas alone, North and South Dakota granted, uh, that area alone in some years can support, actually, I believe last year is supported 22% of the total number of ducks that were uh, that were estimated in what we call the traditional survey area. That's kind of mid-continent North America, um, sort of west of the Great Lakes. And so 22% in the eastern Dakotas. Now, if you add add in the western Dakotas in Montana, you're actually capturing all of the um, all of the prairie pothole region for the most part in on, on the state side. But uh, that just, uh, to your point, just shows the importance of that region. On average, maybe 14%, I think, was the number I came up with for the eastern Dakotas that they have accounted for in terms of annual breeding duck population. So, certainly is an important area, and, and uh, I don't have the breakdown between North and South Dakota, but um, but nevertheless, it certainly certainly is important to your to your point. So, the, the table that you're talking about where it breaks down the, the survey regions for the Fish and Wildlife Service are... Eastern Dakota's geography is roughly 7% of the total uh, traditional survey area geography, but often carrying around oh, 20 to 30% of the total BPOP. So very, very disproportionate importance as far as the amount of birds we carry in a small geography. Yeah. Uh, I, I did not realize the significance of that area, I guess, and I mean, I did, but numerically wise that's just something i had not looked at here recently and so that stood out to me as i was preparing for this little discussion here one thing as we get into a discussion about wetland conditions and duck numbers across the state of north dakota uh, perhaps start with giving people a, a feel for how wetland conditions duck populations just generally speaking vary across the state it's not like north dakota is uniform in its wetland density and breeding duck populations so uh, going you know kind of from west to east what are the parts of the state that are most important in terms of wetland numbers and, and duck numbers well one one important note about duck numbers we were just referencing a fish and wildlife service report um one, one thing I have to point out is that a lot of times numbers between different surveys differ. So our numbers scale differently than the Fish and Wildlife Service numbers. Uh, they're almost always different, but they do 
correlate very highly. Uh, the R square is something like 0.75 on the correlation of, you know, what numbers are increasing or decreasing, but they do scale differently. So keep that in mind if you're ever comparing the two reports or hearing about the numbers that we talk about in, in our survey report and thinking about numbers that you might be more familiar with in the Fish Wildlife Service report. Getting into your question about North Dakota's uh, geography, and um, I guess the way I always explain it are the physiographic regions that we have in the state. You know, North Dakota is uh, one of the rectangle states in the Great Plains. Um, we've got the Missouri River that enters um, in the in the west central side and kind of makes a sort of diagonal turn running down and exiting through the south central part of the state. And everything west of that was not glaciated during the past uh, glaciation period. And it's not really your top duck country. It, it turns into high plains stuff where uh, duck breeding duck densities are really quite low. Uh, you have some, some really isolated spots that are really, really good, but by and large, it's not your prairie pothole region. The prairie pothole region is north and east of the Missouri River system running in North Dakota. So once you're north and east of that, you're um, immediately going to run into the Missouri Slope. That's kind of the inside edge of the Missouri Coteau, which is the famed uh, breeding area in North America for uh, prairie ducks um, and of utmost importance to the uh, mid-continent region of North America for, for duck harvest. And uh, that's going to be your some of your highest uh, wetland densities, wetland diversities, and also intact grassland. It's it represents dead end moraine from where the glacier stopped. So it's you know undulating hills, um, loose soils, gravelly soils. Um, you know, not exactly top notch farming stuff, and not very hard to find rocks that are as big as basketballs when you're digging a hole. So um, it's a little bit more of an intact landscape. Uh, sliding off of that to the to the east and northeast, you start to hit different um, compositions of the drift prairie that are going to be uh, glacial lake beds or uh, more, uh, I guess, lowest plains where it's just kind of rolling, um, small rolling hills, um, but a much less defined, um, I guess, topography. So wetlands are smaller, they're more ephemeral, easier to drain. Uh, soil productivity is extremely high and anthropogenic influences in the drift prairie are, are really quite high. There's a lot of, um, a lot of that landscape that's been affected by, uh, people in one way or another, um, primarily in agricultural production. It's, it's really good farmland is what it comes down to. And in some of those areas there, there are again, some extraordinarily high, um, densities of wetlands and, and breeding ducks associated with them. And then moving off to the far eastern side of the state, you have the Red River Valley, which is by no imagination a valley for what people imagine valleys be. It's being it's um, it's an old glacial lake bed that sits a couple hundred a couple hundred feet lower than the surrounding drift prairie and is one of the flattest places on earth. <laughs> yeah, it is. I can attest to that. Uh, again, some some very very good farmland and, and agricultural production out of that area, and not not really much for duck habitat anymore. It's, it's, it really doesn't have much left for grass or wetlands. Yeah. And, and so that drift, uh, the drift prairie, it, despite it being one of the more agriculturally intensive parts of the state, it's, it also has, I 
second to the Missouri Coteau, I think it's the um, it traditionally has the highest densities of waterfowl, right? Second to the Missouri Coteau, is that right? Yeah, yeah, it is. A, it's a bigger geography, so it's going to carry more ducks. But yeah, when you get into pockets of good intact wetland communities, uh, there are a ton of ducks, and they do quite well. Um, especially, you know, in a year like this, when it's extraordinarily wet and, you know, there's just a lot of places where people can't go. There's a lot of places where nest predators probably aren't going to go because it's just such a inundated mess in some areas that ducks can get into a nest that they, they'll probably actually do pretty good with production, even though the landscape is fairly impaired for, um, you know, upland nesting cover. But yeah, it's not it's not quite the same as the Coteau where you can depend a little bit more on production to happen. But nonetheless, I mean, the the drift prairie is extraordinarily important for waterfowl migration uh, besides what we do out there for for duck production. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mike, let's let's talk about wetland conditions first, then we'll talk about duck production, or I uh, should say uh, duck numbers. What did you see across the state with respect to wetland conditions, and how do those numbers compare to long-term average and maybe what you've seen the uh, last few years? I mean, folks in North Dakota all remember what happened here last fall. We had an extraordinarily odd fall with um, a whole summer's worth of rain falling and a couple of rain events and uh, kind of extending through September and October. So it was very unusual. We also had a, a blizzard. Again, people people wonder what duck hunting is like up here. Well, if you have a, a 10 to 30 inch blizzard, the 9th of October, it, it kind of messes up duck hunting. All that translated into pretty good uh, wetland conditions though for this spring. So, I mean, we weren't surprised one bit to find very wet conditions. Um, I, I guess I was a little bit surprised to see that even in our western parts of the state, our, our wetland numbers were still up, even though it had been fairly dry. They didn't get as much rain um, in in the fall, and they really didn't get much for pre uh, snow in the in the wintertime. And then, boy, this spring, after we thawed out, it was dry. It's We really haven't had much rain in North Dakota um, all spring. Uh, there's a few areas that have had some good shots in the last month, which is really important, but I mean, it's, it's gone from deluge to drought. And we always kind of joke up here that you could be two weeks from a flood or two weeks from drought. So you just never know sometimes, but, um, overall our, our wetland estimate was, uh, even despite with it being fairly dry in the Western half of the state, our wetland estimate, our wetland index was, uh, the sixth highest on record. And the highest uh, wetland index that we've had since 2014. And it just progressively got wetter and wetter as you go east. You know, what drives that number a lot is uh, really ephemeral water, uh, type 1 wetlands, type 3 wetlands, uh, road ditches, drainage ditches, things like that, that, you know, can dry out in short order. So we had a very uh, huge pulse of those wetland types um, 
in our survey this year, which are very good for breeding ducks. They're, they're important. Not, not so much the ditches. You don't want to see a lot of ditches because it's indicative of wetland drainage, but if they've got a lot of water, it still tells you there's a lot of water on the landscape. And, uh, you know, those, uh, temporary and seasonal wetland basins are incredibly important for, uh, pair habitat, uh, by settling duck pairs. And then also the seasonal wetlands as the summer progresses to provide brood habitat. Well, so the next big question is, what did you see in terms of duck numbers? We would expect if you have a uh, have good wetland conditions, we're going to have good duck numbers. Did that bear itself out again this year? Yeah, it sure did. We, um, you know, we had our uh, 13th highest uh, breeding duck index on record and uh, got up to just short of, um, in our index, 4 million breeding ducks, which is a really good sign. I mean, as we as we kind of look at our duck numbers over the past 26 years, where we, once we get past 1994, we're in this kind of new era of just a lot more precipitation. We had really good duck production for a long time because of tons of CRP on the landscape, sort of the the best of the best days for ducks. So our, our 26 highest counts have been in the 20 last 26 years and getting to you know, 13th overall means we're right back to the middle of the road and just looking at the numbers. Yeah. We're, we're like 2000 ducks in our index off of that median or mean, mean count for that time period. So that's, that's really good to see as we, you know, look through our species counts, we've got a really strong count for all of our birds. Um, you know, our mallard count was just shy of 900,000 again. Um, that's going to be, uh, I think our 18th highest on record. All of our species counts were pretty good. It, it was a little bit surprising to see redheads down a tiny bit. I think they were down 12%. I think in the news release or maybe in one of the reports you read, you might have seen that greenwing teal were at a record high. And um, there's not too much to be made out of that because we only have about uh, 68,000, 69,000 in that record high. So it's not a huge number. Um, they're just not one of our primary nesting species in the state. We, we do run into them with broods and, uh, you know, nests out if, if we're out nest searching or something like that, but, uh, kind of a small number, uh, blue teal, however, though, we're also up uh, almost 60%. I think they were up maybe 58%. And uh, when we're talking about bluings in North Dakota, that's very often our most abundant breeding duck. So we had just over 1.1 million breeding bluings in the state uh, in our in our duck index this spring. So that's a really good sign. Our numbers have been kind of trending down for a while. And uh, what's surprising about that number as well is that, you know, as you alluded to, South Dakota is in really good shape very wet blueing teal are one of these species that as they migrate north they'll stop at sort of the first best habitat they find if if it's really good they'll stop and and settle in so the fact that we were still able to get 1.1 million after they probably mostly fell out in south dakota is really good and that bodes really really well for duck production for for bluings as they're a really important species in the duck harvest all over North America, and especially for these states that have extra teal hunting opportunities. 
Absolutely, Mike. There's a lot to like about the survey results that y'all produced this year. I'm looking at the chart here myself um, and noted that blue wing teal number and thinking exactly along the lines of what you said about what it likely also means for South Dakota. Um, uh, just a quick note about those green wing teal uh, for any of our listeners that may be wondering why that number is so low uh, traditionally. Is, you know, Even this year, although it's record high, you said I think 68, 60, 69,000. That species interest enough is one that's going to continue on north into the parkland boreal forest of a lot of canada and then some of them head on even farther north than that so just uh, one of those interesting species really small duck but then it, it travels uh, far north to some of these more northern breeding locations so um but yeah it looks really good from the standpoint of wetland conditions and duck numbers there in north dakota it'd be really nice if we had some numbers out of south dakota but we can probably draw some conclusions based on what we're hearing with respect to wetland conditions there and and these numbers here are even more impressive and more comforting you might even say when we when we hear about kind of the the mediocre wetland conditions across much of prairie canada whether it be manitoba saskatchewan alberta uh, it sounds like wetland conditions there are much the way they were last year and in some cases maybe even a bit drier so again we'll reiterate this many many times that's why it's so important to preserve this entire prairie region preserve the capacity over over this large landscape because Wetland conditions are rarely going to be uniformly good across this across this area. We need it. Uh, we need that large landscape, the capacity preserved uh, across both the U.S. and Canada, so that we make sure we have good habitat in place for years exactly like this, where we we have favorable environmental conditions in uh, in the states. We have if we have good habitat in place in the states, then the ducks are going to be able to take advantage of that, and then the uh, the mediocre and more drought-like conditions in the prairies are not going to have as as tremendous of a, of a negative impact on overall waterfowl population. So this is a great year to emphasize the importance of having that capacity preserved at large scales. Mike. I- Anything else that you wanted to comment on with respect to your observations this year? Uh, I do know that y'all are going to have an additional survey. Maybe it's a brood survey in July, but any other observations worth sharing from the breeding duck survey? Yeah, sure. We, um, yeah, we've, we are going to have a a duck production survey that we run um, in mid-July. We've been running that since uh, 1958. So that'll give us uh, another kind of look at how, how ducks are doing. Uh, production wise and we do uh, give a fall flight estimate off of that that again is our our own estimate and comparable to our own numbers so that'll come out in a news release uh, probably later in July and then uh, like I said as our you know for people wanting to hunt in North Dakota the fall wetland survey results will also be in a news release in in September you know our our duck numbers are are pretty strong and We've uh, we've got the capacity this year to to have good duck production, so I think people should take some solace in that. Um, you know, we had some some higher points. Our our scop breeding index this year was quite high again, and from time to time we do actually crank out a lot of scop. We have um, a fair number of scop uh, broods we find, and uh, you know, last year was one of those years where scop should have done really well and scopper a philopatric species that come back to where they were fledged so we're hoping it was an indication of that you know last year with all the late summer fall precipitation we had we had grass that stood 
a lot longer than it normally does uh, because of normal hanging dates. We, you know, I always consider anytime you have grass standing after the 4th of July, it's bonus time for ground nesting birds. And we had a lot of stuff not get hayed until uh, mid-August. So that bodes well for SCOP. They're uh, the latest nesting species we have for ducks up here where they're still um, sitting on nests going into August. So um, I'm hoping that that's, that's maybe what we're getting an indication of was maybe a uh, a really good bonus here last year on scott production in north dakota because we're not typically thought of as a primary scott breeding area yeah that is interesting i'm glad to hear that i also note that northern shelter numbers were up this year that's going to be uh welcome news to my supervisor dr tom mormon he is uh he's a big fan of shelters and certainly not shy about uh, taking those when he has an opportunity so i'll be sure to relay this information to him i say that kind of jokingly but no at uh um, that is good to see across the board, good duck numbers. And one of the other things that the, the pandemic has kind of uh, hindered, I think will hinder later this summer is uh, banding, preseason banding operations. Are, are you all going to be able to pull off some of that banding in North Dakota? I believe Canada, uh, at least in the, at least at far northern latitudes, they had already announced uh, that they were unlikely to be able to conduct those. But are y'all going to be able to do some banding operations in your state this year? Yeah, yeah, we will. We we have um, we're just going to start Canada goose banding here um, next week. We had to make some adjustments to our our larger scale Canada goose banding program. We had a a very large operation uh, set to go this year that kind of had us traveling all over the state with a lot of intermingling of people um, coming in and out of a work crew and staying in hotels and just, it, it was just too much cross pollination this year. So we paired that back quite a bit to a smaller effort that we can run with a, a more locally based crew and, and not have sort of the interchange of folks on that. Our duck banding work should go ahead as planned. Um, we run small two-person crews, and those people are kind of together all the time anyways in their work environment. So we don't foresee any issues there. And um, they're run out of workstations where they're kind of working in geography around a, a single a base, I guess you could say. So we don't have any issues there uh, that we see coming up. Um, we're still maybe looking at... Um, hopefully finding ways to to reallocate some of the resources that we're not going to go to Canada this year and and uh, make up for some of the data gaps. Um, you know, we obviously won't have the same geography covered, but um, hopefully can get enough bands out to inform our O parameter estimates that we use in harvest management every year. Well, Mike, that's probably going to do it for us. Whenever we started this, I guess before we started recording, I said we might uh, about 20 minutes on this episode would probably be about right. And it looks to me like we're getting closer to the 40 minute mark. But that's kind of the way it goes when two people get together and start talking about ducks. But uh, nevertheless, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that's okay too. That's okay, too. We had a lot of good information to talk about and to share. And so thank you for joining us. And on behalf of everyone here at Ducks Unlimited, I just want to say thank you to you, uh, the North Dakota Game and Fish uh, Department, and everyone else there in your agency for the great work that y'all do, that y'all done this year, and the work work that y'all do every year with respect to supporting wetlands conservation your contribution to the data that helps us understand and better manage the population just all around we appreciate you and your partnership and all the work that you do for for waterfowl thank you mike all right mike thanks for your time you bet anytime 
special thanks to our guest on today's show, Mike Zemanski with North Dakota Game and Fish Department. We appreciate him sharing his time and, and telling us about some of the great results that they found from a recent breeding duck survey they conducted in that state. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the great work that he does getting the pot, these podcasts edited and out to you, our listeners. And of course, to you, the listeners, we thank you for your time and spending with us. And we thank you for your support of wetlands conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.